Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Michael Wald, and thank you so much for tuning in today for what I think is a very, very important topic. I mean, I think all the topics that I do are important, uh, but this one uh, is about cancer, and there are lots of different shows and lots of different uh, uh, books and information out there that speak about cancer, and specifically in the natural healthcare field, speak about the so-called anti-cancer uh, diet or the best diet or approaches for cancer. And I must tell you that over the 29 uh, years that I've been doing uh, holistic medicine, I can tell you that uh, the amount of misinformation far outweighs the amount of accurate information regarding anti-cancer diets. When I say anti-cancer diets though, I'm not merely talking about ways to eat uh, for the prevention of cancer. Uh, I'm talking about ways of eating that are considered best for when someone has uh, cancer. So is there really an anti-cancer diet? Well, I suppose it depends on who you ask. If you were to ask a traditionally trained oncologist, hematologist, that uh, physician would likely tell you that there are no special diets uh, regarding any of the, of the, of the 800 plus uh, different varieties of cancer. And uh, that is expressed in hospitals where uh, when people are finally hospitalized uh, or put in hospice uh, with their advanced cancers, they are fed the typical American diet, which is put together by a dietitian on staff at the hospital. And um, what is so striking to me, though, is that if one were to do some diligent research on the uh, National Library of Medicine website or the Cochrane database, these are the two main sources of uh, medical data and nutritional data in the form of uh, studies. You would be hard-pressed not to find information that uh, directly uh, discusses and interprets and evaluates the role of different diets uh, for cancer. I want to begin first by saying something that I know that all of you know. Uh, we are all individuals. And just based on that one fact, it should be apparent at the onset that there can never be one diet that fits all for cancer treatment. Now, when it comes to cancer prevention, as I'll speak about in the next few minutes, a vegan diet seems to be about the best way to go for overall prevention. But most people that I see already have cancer. And a lot of these people have been vegan or vegetarian, even macrobiotic, even uh, raw foodists for decades taking, when I say buckets of nutrients, I, I mean that literally. 
and they ended up with cancer and they do not understand why that is. So when I say, is there really an anti-cancer diet? I mean, think about it. Shouldn't the diet and other healthy lifestyle factors be specific for the person who has that particular type of cancer? Given their genetics and their lifestyle and other factors, uh, whether and what about if there's more than one cancer present in a person? And what if that person is receiving chemotherapy and or radiation or may have surgery? Then what happens to the so-called ideal diet now? So from a practical perspective, I can tell you that depending on where a person is along their cancer journey, their dietary needs should change. Now, I said earlier that a traditionally trained oncologist hematologist really would not make that statement. In other words, other than their cancer patients saying to them, I'm nauseous, I can't eat, and if the oncologists were really smart and thinking about things, they might say something like, well, try eating, drinking soups first, and then clear broth, and then as your appetite returns, put some more mass in the soup, cook the vegetables, and if you're going to eat meat, in the soup very, very, very well, so it's super soft and it's more tolerable to the person. And then as their nausea waxes and wanes, as it comes and goes, the person would move to a liquid diet, to a more solid diet, back and forth, back and forth. That's pretty much what medicine has to offer, and I kid you not. I mean, I'm uh, among my other certifications, I'm a traditionally uh, trained and educated dietitian nutritionist and also a certified nutrition specialist. Now, you need to know that those are the two certifications that are, are recognized in the state of New York uh, for nutritional practitioners. Uh, there are others. And you need to be aware, whether it's you that has cancer, or a family member, or a loved one, or a friend, or even if you or someone else you know uh, is concerned of their future susceptibility uh, for developing cancer, maybe due to family history, it's important to find the, the most qualified healthcare provider for the, for the cancer. It is amazing to me that I will see people that have diagnoses of cancer, metastatic spread of cancer, and they've seen several practitioners. And I ask them about these practitioners, and I'm sure they're well-intentioned, but often I will find them not at all qualified. Uh, some of them took a weekend course in nutrition. Another one took a year co course in New York City from some popular nutrition school that does not teach chemistry, does not teach the nutritional needs of cancer patients, but maybe reviews 20 diets or 30 diets or 50 diets or whatever it is. That's not going to fly. Now, the short answer to is there a, a specific best anti-cancer diet is, is no. There is no ideal diet for the cancer patient. And if you think about it, once again, you know it's true because, you know, if someone uh, is overweight, for example, shouldn't they be eating differently than someone who's of normal weight? And if someone is diabetic and of normal weight, shouldn't they be eating differently than someone who's diabetic who has cancer? 
And, and what if the person with cancer has gluten intolerance and uh, malabsorption syndrome? What happens to the ideal diet now? So you might be thinking, but Dr. Walt, what about the macrobiotic diet? And what about the high enzyme approach? And what about a raw food diet? Well, let me make some brief comments about those few things. Number one, a raw food diet is almost never appropriate for a cancer patient simply because it, is, it creates quite a bit of stress on the digestive tract and the entire metabolism of a cancer patient because the cancer person is of a low metabolic energy. And if they have to secrete tons of digestive enzymes to break down this raw diet, then uh, that is going to suck their metabolic energy. And some of you are saying, but wait a minute, Dr. Wald. No, no, no. The, the raw foods have tons of enzymes. I'm telling you practically that although there are enzymes, even tons of enzymes in raw foods, it is a stress on the digestive system of the cancer patient. And what about a macrobiotic diet? The same thing. Are there healthy components, components to a raw diet? Are there healthy components of a macrobiotic diet, like fruits and vegetables, uh, that are beneficial to cancer patients? Yes. How much and when these foods should be eaten and how they should be prepared in combination with what nutrients or the type of details that are required if one is going to undertake a serious approach, a serious nutritional approach towards managing cancer nutritionally. The diet must always be specific to the person's unique cancer circumstances. If I say someone has cancer, what does that even mean? Well, that means maybe that they have a, uh, a tumor somewhere and that tumor is play, plays upon the person's health very differently than metastatic spread, let's say, resulting from that tumor. In other words, a person can have some old cancer cells in the body that are creating severe problems. They may have brand new cancer cells causing problems in the body. All sorts of different stages, even in the same person. And when I say stages, I mean it differently than what you're thinking about, about cancer staging. Someone could have stage four breast cancer, but they can still have metastatic tumors and they can still have new cancer cells forming and intermediate cancer cells forming and, and, and metastasis and tumors and cancer cells in circulation from a nutritional perspective are, are dealt with uh, very differently actually. For example, modified citrus pectin helps to reduce leakiness of blood vessels and lymphatic channels. If you have leaky tubes, cancer cells squeeze right through them and spread throughout the body. So as important as, let's say, vitamin C is for cancer care in general, okay, in general, it is not as important if one is focusing on a serious metastatic condition compared to uh, modified citrus pectin. Let me give you some other examples to think about. You know, for example, if a, if a postmenopausal, if a menopausal woman, a postmenopausal woman has breast cancer and has 
it's metastasized. It's stage four. Her nutritional needs are quite different than if her cancer is localized. For example, what if there's a woman with breast cancer that has the BRCA gene that predisposes her to severe, deadly breast cancer? Now, most women with breast cancer and most men do not have that genetic glitch, that BRCA gene. That's right. Most men and women who have breast cancer do not have any genetic predisposition at all. But let's say, to be specific, that we have a woman with breast cancer and we found out that one of the reasons for her breast cancer is that she has a metabolic problem called hypomethylation. Hypomethylation. She does not methylate normally. Methylation is a healing process which helps repair the genetic material. Now, this woman might do research and find out that folic acid is in foliage. It's in green leafy vegetables and start to juice them all day long. She might even go to Mexico and drink 12 juices a day. Well, she'll die because folic acid in foliage is not methylated. And 10% of the female population cannot methylate normally. So she just needs a handful of pills of methylated folic acid. That's an example of how supplementation is better than foods. Now, certain cancers like bladder cancer are known to be predisposed in individuals who have uh, environmental exposure to chemicals from the air that they breathe, uh, that is, uh, their origins are from the plastics manufacturing, also side stream smoke and direct smoking. Now, there are certain plant chemicals known as phytonutrients that can help detoxify the uh, cancerous plastics from plastics manufacturing that made their way into the environment. So, if one is going to properly detoxify those plastics, that means that there needs to be a large dose of phytonutrient plants and, and, and quite a large number of different ones that must be taken at least three times a day. Why three times a day? Because the half-life of most phytonutrients is only about four to six hours. So if you take it once, it's done. Far too soon. You must be constantly exposed in the blood. So I see lots of people with cancer that have seen me over the years that are actually taking the right things in entirely the wrong dosages. Okay. If you were to ask me, is there a single way of eating that would be the best way for a person with one or more of the 800 or so known forms of cancer? Well, I would be forced to say vegan. In short, there is strong evidence that eating vegan reduces the risk of developing cancer and many other diseases like heart disease and diabetes and autoimmune disease, things like that, immune diseases, and yes, cancer. But do not be fooled. Vegans get cancer. They just get it more rarely than non-vegans, it seems. Vegetarian diets are certainly better than the standard American diet 
for the prevention of cancer development. Once you have cancer, maybe yes, maybe no. Some individuals will waste away to nothing and their immune systems will fail if they do not have enough protein. You can get that protein from animal products. Of course, we're talking, you know, farm-raised, etc. Or if a person wants to avoid animal products, then they'll take concentrated powders of proteins. Those will work as well. And in the cancer patient, well, in any of us wishing to stay well and wanting to idealize the dosing of both the macronutrients we're eating and all of the nutritional supplements is, we must have a bioimpedance test done. A bioimpedance test, also known as a body comp, tells you your metabolic rate and tells me your percentage of muscle, water, and fat in your body. The lean mass of the body, the organ mass, and the muscles, that's all the lean mass. As you lose that, you're losing your life. Anything that you do in cancer care, I don't care, again, if you go to Mexico, if you, if you consume hundreds of enzymes, if you get intravenous vitamin C and all of that, if you do not increase your lean body mass, then um, it's, not, it's not working. It's not working. The loss of lean body mass in medicine is called sarcopenia. It's a fancy term for loss of lean mass, which is associated with lower immunity and a hastened death. The more lean body mass you have, the greater the chances of you surviving and thriving. You know, there are some commonalities among the so-called best cancer diets. Even among the commonalities, though, we need to realize that there is individual variation among person to person. What works for one person may not work for another. Want to take a break for a second. For those of you just joining us, my name is Dr. Michael Wald. You're listening to Ask the Blood Detective, and we're talking about anti-cancer diet lies. If you want to reach me with questions, comments, or you want to see me as a client, either in person or uh, via distance, call me at 914-552-1442. That's 914-552-1442. And also, you guys can leave me questions, and you gals, by at any time, you can call this number and leave me questions. The number is 862-800-6805. That's 862-800-6805. Call any time and leave your message for me. You can email me at info at blooddetective.com. And you can visit my website, watch my videos, other shows at intmed ny.com. Okay, so we're talking about the commonalities among the so-called best anti-cancer diets and even among the commonalities such as, you know, eating lower down on the food chain, meaning consuming lots of fruits and vegetables, avoiding all fried foods, avoiding all trans fats, never eat smoked foods, drink practically no alcohol, uh, eat very little uh, dairy products, or none. These are reasonable generalities, except if someone is not responding to them and other aspects of what we think is a proper anti-cancer diet for a person, then that diet must be changed immediately. So I make sure to 
focus quite a lot of attention each week with my patients and reperforming body composition tests to make sure that the lean body mass is sustaining and growing. Okay, so I should say first before I go any further that I believe that every person with cancer should consult the advice, uh, the advice of a trained clinical nutritionist experienced in cancer care and also is experienced with the appropriate use of nutritional supplements, whether the supplements are the, in the form of powders, herbs, vitamins, minerals, amino acids, superfoods, other nutraceuticals. And all of these nutritional compounds must be individualized for the person's unique circumstances surrounding their cancer diagnosis, their cancer treatments, and any other lifestyle factors. If a person comes to me and says, Dr. Wald, I'm going to get chemotherapy, will you still support me nutritionally? Of course I will. If someone says to me, Dr. Wald, I have thoroughly researched uh, chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, I've decided that is not for me, would you still support me nutritionally? Of course I will. Now, what I'm about to do right now is go through about, as I look at my pages here, at least 20 different essential bullet points that you need to be thinking about or anyone concerned about their cancer care and the role of nutrition in it must be considering. Number one, is there, are the, the nutritional suggestions provided to them, to you, whoever it is, are they individualized for you? Meaning, are the doses of the, are the types of nutritional supplements chosen based upon your unique circumstances, your genetics, other medications you may be taking, the rest of your health history, your health goals, your age, and other factors. They must be individualized. Are the doses individualized based upon your lean body mass and body composition analysis? That's that bioimpedance test I just spoke of. Are the recommendations based upon, at least in part, laboratory work that helps to determine what your needs are. I mean, if you have a blood pH of 7.3, you need a very different set of nutritional supplements and foods compared to those with pHs of 7.4. And I'm talking about blood now. The urine and saliva pH in cancer care is an absolute waste of time. I have seen practitioners focus everything on these inaccurate compartments in the body, meaning saliva and urine of pH. It is the blood you want to be focusing on. Unless you have a urinary tract infection, then you want to be focusing on the, the urinary pH, obviously. And you would want a pH that is not alkaline, by the way. You want it towards the acid side. That is why acidophilus helps cure 30% or so of urinary tract infections. So this concept that a person should be alkaline, and many of you who are regular listeners to Blood Detect Ask the Blood Detective know that that's my pet peeve. It's one of my major pet peeves, this, this, cr this craziness, this inaccuracy, this misinformation, this miseducation about pH. If you want to know what there is to know about pH that's practical, I've summarized it in one hour on my show called PH Lies. So check that out under my blog at my website at intmedny.com. So we want to know, are the 
nutrients, the foods, the lifestyle, are they based upon some amount of laboratory testing, pH? What is the person's lactic acid? How about their nitric oxide? If they don't make nitric oxide, they can't circulate nutrients to places. If they don't make nitric oxide, they can't clear out toxins very well. These are things that most people haven't even heard of. Is the person with cancer, do they malabsorb? Lots of people malabsorb. 50% of people over the age of 50 malabsorb. That means they do not absorb a certain amount of what they're consuming. That may have given them cancer in the first place. If you're malabsorbing nutrients for 5, 10, 20 years, who knows how long, then your body's going to break down. It's not going to be able to build an immune system and then you get cancer or whatever other disease you might get. It's very rare that I see people who come to me having seen other practitioners that have had their malabsorption checked. And even if you do not malabsorb by some miracle, even if you do not malabsorb, your nutritional needs in many areas, not all, are many times higher than what they would be normally if you have cancer or if your body's developing cancer. All right, that's bullet number one. Bullet number two, if the person with cancer has received chemotherapy or will get chemotherapy or radiation or surgery, those health history factors must be, must be managed. I mean, right? Isn't that common sense? If, if, we know, if I know that a patient of mine has decided on their own uh, to receive chemotherapy, I need to know, it's my responsibility to know, what sort of chemotherapy are they receiving? And does that chemotherapy have any negative interactions with nutrients? Meaning, I could give this person certain nutrients, even certain foods in some cases, and that might reduce the effects of the chemotherapy, the exact opposite of what is wanted. And on the other hand, there are certain nutrients that, far more of them actually, that enhance the effects of many forms of chemotherapy, and I need to know those. Traditional dietitians are not taught that. I, I guess I learned that over 29 years because I did not learn much of that in chiropractic school, and I did not learn any of that in medical school. I did not learn any of it during my master's program, which I took in human nutrition at an actual school. Um, so these are, there are certain things that the conscientious healthcare provider has to learn on their own. And they need to go to reliable sources and know where to go for this uh, information because it's constantly changing. And I mentioned earlier, I just want to reemphasize this, that another important point is that the dosing of natural therapies they have to be individualized for the person's genetics and chemistries and needs and their capabilities. If I say to a patient, here's 55 different nutrients that you need, I mean, I'm setting them up for failure. Now, if they actually need those things, if meaning that I personally would conduct hours, sometimes weeks, in some cases, even months of research to determine what an individual needs. And then if there are too many things that they could possibly take in a day, then I will make them a custom formula, usually in a powder form, but it can be in a vegetarian capsule. And I specify to the compounding producers, 
exactly the doses and types and synergistic balance of every single natural pharmaceutical grade compound in that product. Because that way, see, here's what happens. There's a, this, this wonderful concept called nutritional synergism. And what that means basically is that one could combine several different natural compounds together. And because they're so well uh, put together and combined, that they have effects in the body as if they had much larger doses, as if much larger doses were taken. So if I want someone to have 10,000 grams of vitamin C, but that makes them nauseous, let's say. If I want to reduce that 10 grams to one gram, I would need to combine that 1,000 milligrams of vitamin C, that one gram, with 10 other nutrients known to have synergistic effects with one another. It makes the one gram of vitamin C act like 10. And it makes the other nutrients, which are in much smaller amounts, act like much higher amounts. Here's why you need to know this. And it doesn't matter if you're concerned about cancer or not. It doesn't matter what the health endeavor is. You must know that most of the nutrients that you take, you're wasting your time. If you measured your levels of some of these nutrients in the blood, as they do in research scenarios, you will find that you have drips of these nutrients. For example, you take turmeric, let's say and you take uh, 12,000 milligrams. Well, 80% of that dose, you're going to urinate out. And the rest of that dose, that 20% remaining, it's not high enough for, for any real anti-cancer effects. Some of you are thinking, well, I combine turmeric with uh, biopterine or black pepper fruit or some liposomal package. Good, you're thinking right but do not put all of your natural eggs in one basket. Tumor cologne is not going to save you. In fact, here's the next bullet. I mean, very good research has been done that has shown that if one wants to maximize the anti-cancer potential of a variety of nutraceutical compounds, the studies show that you have to combine a minimum of 36 different nutritional compounds in that person every single day. And if you do not have those 36 minimum nutritional anti-cancer compounds that are the best studied in cancer, meaning cancer, like what does that mean? There's 800 cancers, right? When I say the treatment of cancer, I mean that target, the nutrients, the 36 synergists, target what are called the fundamental causes of cancer. There's four of them. Today's show, we won't be focusing on them, but you should know that the 36 nutrients uh, will cover those four basic areas. Now, does that guarantee success? Unfortunately not. But what we're trying to do in natural medicine when it's done correctly, and in cancer care specifically, is we need to get it right. 
We can't just throw a bunch of nutrients at people. We need to make sure that there's at least 36 different synergists. Sometimes I have to take those 36 things and I have to make them into a powder, into a special compounded product for a patient based on their needs for the doses. And or if they're taking certain medications, certain nutritional compounds for them, part of my initial 36 list, they can't take. I have to then choose the next thing for them. So there isn't some list, some of you are thinking, what's the list of the 36 things? Well, I can rattle some of them off, but none of them are necessarily pertinent to you or whoever it is you're listening to this show for because we have to figure out what their needs are. But the research does say, given all the factors that you figure out in a person for what their nutritional needs are, there's something magical about the 36 synergistic combinations. The doses have to be there. The frequency of taking the supplements has to be there too. It's gotta be three times a day. It can't just be once a day. That's why sometimes it needs to be made into a powder so then it could be put into a liquid. So one of the takeaways for that whole rant I just went into is the dosing often is far too low. And synergism must be considered as a basic concept to figure out nutrition for anyone with any problem. You want it to work, right? Of course. This next point is important. I will sometimes be visited by a person who I believe requires a therapy that I happen not to provide. And it is my responsibility ethically to suggest to this person this therapy and uh, direct them where to go. So you must consider that you should be asking your healthcare provider, even if you're super happy with their care for you, and you say, doc, maybe they're not doctors, but you'll say, practitioner, (laughs) Um, I'm happy with my care. However, I'm always thinking of other things. Is there any other treatment that if you had cancer like me, that you might also get? And then see their response. And really look too, if they answer too quickly, I don't like that. You want them, you wanna see if they're thinking about it. And then also, you don't wanna take their word for it. You wanna do your own research. You know, each healthcare provider's experience is limited and should never be considered the all in all of experience. And I know you're thinking, well, of course not, Dr. Wald. I I know that. But even I am constantly questioning, have I provided the best there is for this person? And if I think for one minute that something else should be done or someone else is better to do that, I will make that recommendation. Again, another point is, Whatever natural therapies that you're getting, they may need to be adjusted. They may need to be changed over time as your health status changes over time. Far too often, I'm visited by people who have gotten the same therapies every week, every week, forever. And I'll say to them, so how do you feel? Do you feel you're better? Some will say, I don't know. I'll say, but it's been six months. It's been a year. Some people just don't know. 
Um, and some people will also say, well, I'm here, so that's good. Well, if I look at their labs and other tests and, and everything looks bad, you know, the person may likely have survived anyway, but the quality of their life may be taking a hit. And what about, what about the concept of protecting healthy cells from chemotherapy and radiation? Um, and also, many people with cancer are constantly getting PET scans and CT scans. These emit a tremendous amount of radiation, but oncologists and the cancer teams, they don't put a second thought to that. And I understand in a, in a way because they're probably thinking, well, I don't think they're thinking of it at all. But if you question them, they would probably say something like, well, yes, there's, there's radiation, but it's a necessary evil because we're trying to help the patient. Well, that makes sense. But that doesn't mean that, uh, number one, they couldn't take fewer scans. That's a possibility. Or even if that's not true. There is very strong research that shows the right nutritional protection can reduce the radiation load in a person's body. I did an entire hour on this, and all I did for the hour, everyone, is I reviewed the medical literature, one abstract after another, showing that certain phytonutrients and antioxidants, even if they were, they're taken after the person's been exposed to PET scans and CT scans, can lower their radiation uh, biological um, accumulation from exposure. And, you know, we need to realize that it's something like 10 to 15% of, of all cancers are thought to be caused by, by medically uh, provided radiation. And then we've got radiation given to weakened patients without any thought to that. So before a patient of mine gets any sort of radiation scan, even an X-ray, I make sure to manage their nutrition prior to that and after that exposure. You know, sadly, as many of you listeners know, <clears throat> cancer doctors most often do not understand even the most basic concept of nutrition, let alone nutrition in cancer care specifically, which is very, very focused. You know, nutrition for cancer care is not the same as nutrition in, in sports medicine or nutrition in um, autoimmune diseases or nutrition in cardiovascular disease. There are some practitioners that focus only in one of those things. I, I personally don't because uh, over the course of 29 years, I've developed a very, very deep a base of knowledge in all areas of, of, of medicine and healthcare. Um, and I think better when I am treating the, the body as a whole and not dividing it up into artificial compartments of the heart and the cancer and the, this and that and the other thing. So the reason I bring up the uh, exposure of radiation in the form of PET scans and, and CT scans uh, in cancer care is that, and also chemotherapy is that nutrition can mitigate, it can lessen, it can reduce the adverse effects of radiation upon the body. Now let me speak for a few moments about using nutrition to mitigate the effects of chemotherapy specifically on the body. And I will start off by saying that even today, 
the majority of hematology oncologists, and I, I well, I should say the majority of, if, if not all of them, that I've ever heard of in my practice, okay, they uh, have the most rudimentary understanding of nutrition in cancer care. And it goes something like this. They do not want their patients taking nutritional supplements. They do not think that eating a particular way will make any difference whatsoever with rare you know, exceptions in cancer care, like uh, those with colon cancer uh, should stop eating meat. And even if they stop eating meat after their diagnosis of colon cancer, they usually survive longer. So that's like a big thing in, in, in cancer care now. They're like, wow, look at that. Uh, but they don't seem to apply that to any other areas. But back to how to mitigate or reduce the adverse effects of chemotherapy on the body of a person undergoing chemotherapy. Chemotherapy is toxin. That's what it is. Um, now, some toxins are necessary. Um, I get the concept of chemotherapy that you give someone a toxin that's specific to affecting cells in certain ways. Different chemo- types of chemotherapy work differently. And by creating that toxicity of those cancer cells, those cancer cells die. But as you might imagine, chemotherapy is uh, not uh, very specific at all to cancer cells, and it also attacks healthy cells. So it's really quite amazing that anyone survives chemotherapy. Uh, In fact, uh, Dr. Mendelssohn, who was the author of several books, uh, he's deceased now, but his main book years back was called Confessions of a Medical Heretic. And in short, he exposed all of these horrors in, in medicine and ignorance in medicine. Um, That's just a side note. Now, if one were to take extremely high doses of vitamin C, that vitamin C would kill some cancer cells because cancer cells do not protect themselves well in the presence of high doses of vitamin C. And some of those cancer cells will die, not all of them. And healthy cells are not at all harmed by vitamin C. So if there's chemotherapy that's directed towards cancer cells, and cancer cells are highly susceptible to further destruction by vitamin C, high levels of C, but healthy cells are not, vitamin C, when used correctly, is one of those nutrients that will help offset the effects of chemotherapy upon the healthy cells. Therefore, increasing the probability of the person surviving the chemotherapy and surviving their cancer. You know, most people with cancer do not die of their cancer per se. They tend to die of secondary infections and malnutrition. And this is known in cancer care. But still, there's no attempt made uh, to improve the nutritional status of the patient Unless the person has a gastrointestinal cancer and they need to be fed through total parenteral nutrition uh, directly into a vein in the chest, uh, they basically drip the, the, the food in there. And unfortunately, when you do that, the person is at increased risk for infection and uh, they tend to linger 
uh, it, it doesn't cause some miracle, you know, response or rebound from the improved nutrition. In fact, I should mention too, lots of individuals out there that I've seen, they go through, you know, real pains to convince their physicians or the physicians of their family members in hospitals who have cancer to please give them intravenous nutrition. Um, if you would read the reliable information in the intravenous nutrition books, I've also written one too, by the way. It's called Intravenous and Intramuscular Nutrition Protocols from A to Z. It's the only intravenous nutrition protocols book published in the U.S. The intravenous nutrition information found in medical textbooks is extremely basic compared to that. But in the medical books, It'll talk about certain nutritional additives, B vitamins, E, C, things like that, in tiny amounts. Um, and when you look at people receiving these nutrients in hospital-based settings, they actually do not do any better. So I know that sounds a bit counterintuitive, but it's just the truth. Now, if someone is not in the hospital yet and they're getting intravenous nutrition uh, in a in a an outpatient setting, uh, they're healthier. They can eat. Um, that's a different scenario. Now, some of you are thinking, "Well, Doctor Old, you've mentioned this vitamin C thing. Can you clarify that?" Let me quickly clarify that. Intravenous vitamin C is uh, at times a worthwhile therapy to consider for cancer patients. There are exceptions. You need to know that intravenous nutrition is very high dose. And intravenous nutrition, I mean intravenous nutrition vitamin C is very high dose of vitamin C. And that vitamin C does not act as an antioxidant. And I said this on prior shows, it acts as an oxidant. And the oxidation is what breaks down cancer cells. This is why hematologists are, are adamantly against the use of their patients consuming antioxidants because they're basically giving their patients chemotherapy that acts like oxidants as well. So you might say, well, what do you do? Who is right? Well, you have to understand that the term antioxidant is a, a misnomer. It is a misused term. If you take the so-called antioxidant vitamin E or the antioxidant glutathione or the antioxidant selenium and you put it in your body, it doesn't necessarily act as an antioxidant. It depends on the body you're putting them into. So if you take oral vitamin C, it's more likely to act like an antioxidant in your body, but not if you are deficient in other antioxidants or the other so-called antioxidants. Now, I'm sorry if this is confusing, uh, but this is the chemistry of the nutrients. And I figure if this isn't the place to talk about this kind of thing, I don't know where else is other than the professional seminars that I teach. But I find that if we review some difficult concepts a couple of times over the course of many different shows under different topics. Before you know it, you really know your stuff. And then you might actually save your life one day. Let's go over another topic. Well, another aspect of the topic of nutrition and cancer care. And that has to do 
with the timing of nutritional supplements and foods. If someone is seriously looking to extend their life or to try to beat their cancer or any disease, they must know about nutrition timing of foods and supplements. Athletes know about this. Well, some of them do. There are sports nutrition books written that for chapters and chapters uh, reference articles and studies uh, that show that if you time your proteins, your carbs, and your fats, and other supplements relative to athletic performance, you can improve your athletic performance. I mean, I'm doing that right now. Um, I'm going to be 53 years old in a couple of weeks, and I had decided um, about three months ago that I wanted to put on about 10 pounds of lean mass muscle, and I failed. I practiced food combining and I put on 12 pounds of lean body mass muscle. Um, so I am the most muscular but lean that, than I've, uh, as I've ever been in my life at this age. I do kickboxing. I run marathons. I, lift, I love lifting weights. So the point is that if you do the combining right, whether it's cancer care or athletic performance, you can, you, can extru- you can increase the positive effects of the nutritional efforts by multiple times. Let me say that a little differently. If you have cancer or you know someone who does, and let's say you take the right supplements uh, three times a day, and you eat a super great diet, we'll all just agree that there is such a thing. Now, you'll, you might do well, but if we adjust the ratios of your supplements differently those three times a day, and if we adjust those supplements relative to how you felt that day, and if we adjust your foods relative to your energy that day, and your supplement intake, you see what I'm saying? These sorts of details are the details that make all of the difference, all of the difference, because they're not ordinary and they are allowing one to be much more personalized in the nutritional efforts. You know, we all know, we have, we have one life. Well, maybe we have more than one life, but I'm talking about this life now. We have a lot of say regarding how our health will go. And it is also true that there is much that we cannot influence that we have no idea about in our environments, for example, that impact our genes, damage our genes, and or other organs, tissues, glands, cells in the body that may predispose us to one or more diseases which rob us of high quality lives. So if one wants to prevent as many diseases as possible to delay the early onset of disease, because that's the problem, people are getting disease earlier they're getting multiple diseases at one time and therefore they're dying earlier. Is it true that our lifespans as a 
as a nation in the United States has uh, increased? Yes, that has increased. But one of the major factors that has caused that increase is reduced rate of infant mortality. So that's factored into the numbers. Now, that's not the only thing that skews the concept of whether we're living longer or not. We are living longer, but we are living longer with more disease. Medical technology, for example, in the area of one of the major causes of death among men and women, which is heart disease such as stroke, has people surviving one, two stroke events where they normally would have died. That's medical technology. And I can tell you, the problem with that is these people now, in, in most cases, they are disabled. Their lives are miserable. I have a patient who is barely 60. She has had two, possibly three strokes. She normally would have died with the first stroke, but medicine saved her and kept saving her. She's in a nursing home in a bed. She cannot sit up. She cannot walk. She can barely talk. It is miserable. I know it's hard to eat well. I know it's hard to even find out what that means to eat well and or exercise and think right. But it's probably worth it. The individuals that I have observed over the course of my 29 years and when I was a teenager, as young as actually 10 years old, at my father's nutrition office in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. And his patients would say to me, little Mikey, that's what they call me. Your dad is the greatest. He saved me when no one else could. He taught me this. He taught me that. I, I wanted to be like him. Who wouldn't? And I kept going to my dad's office and kept going to his office. And through the years, I knew what it is I was going to do. And the people that I saw who made these efforts right, they didn't do it all on their own. You, you, sometimes you just can't do that. Even I get assistance when needed. They lived better and they lived longer. And when I f started to practice nutrition and I inherited my dad's charts and I called up some of these people, they were doing great. So... There is something to this. And I'll leave you with one final thought for now. You know, I was sitting with a patient yesterday, a wonderful lady, and she made a comment. She says, Dr. Wald, you know, I believe in nutrition. I believe that, you know, if you, if you eat something or you take a supplement you don't need, your body will get rid of what it doesn't. And, you know, I have people in my life that, you know, they don't know about this. They don't, they don't believe in it. They, you know, they say there's no evidence. I said to her, and we'll call her um, Jane for now. It's not her name. I said, Jane, I hardly know how to respond to that question about evidence. 
I told her that there are over 3 million medical and nutrition citations at the National Library of Medicine. We looked up some specific ones for her and the evidence. People are ignorant. They don't even realize their ignorance. And physicians who are not trained in nutrition and are not trained in holistic mindedness, they're just people who are ignorant. Then they're even, they're even trapped in, in a worse conundrum, mentally speaking, because they are so brainwashed to not believe in anything but medicine. It's much harder for them to learn their way out of that than let's say you or I. That's just my experience. So this isn't a matter of evidence. The evidence is there. And whenever I've had the individual opportunity to sit with a physician or to speak with one on the phone that had a question and who, who had, uh, you know, five minutes of patience to actually, you know, stop talking for a moment and listen for once about what this evidence was, they basically are just quiet. They, they don't know what to say to me other than I, I, I didn't know. So... What I would suggest that you might want to do is, if you have cancer, if you know others with cancer, interview several practitioners. If the practitioner will not allow you to interview him or her, well, they did you a favor. I always allow people to speak with me for at least 15 minutes because during that time, I can figure out if I'm the best one for them. And if I'm not, I will tell them and I'll help them find someone else if I can. So thanks again for listening. My name is Dr. Michael Wald. You've been listening to Ask the Blood Detective. Please give me a call if you want to see me at 914-552-1442. I do distance consults and in person. Email me any questions you have, show topics. All of these show topics have been yours to info at blooddetective.com. And any other questions that you have, you want to take the following number down. You can leave me messages at any time at 862-800-6805. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you soon.